Crumb. Ready, buddy. Five, four, three, two. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Savage Chromecast. My name is Luke. And I'm Josh. And I am Jonathan. And all three of us are in Kentucky, but we're dealing with the internet and lag because it's still the time of COVID. Uh, but we're all we're all here. What we're in communion. We're we're in. <laughs> In a in a holy moment here, the three of us sitting sitting around our computers. Corona still sucks these lands with its viral hound. It's it's it, bad. It's bad times. It nips at our heels. Yeah. <laughs> so what is this? This is this is the thirteenth season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, season season thirteen. I'm gonna say episode episode numero four. Uh, we're talking about Ravens Eerie. Uh, which is a, a Carl Edward Wagner joint about Kane. So we're on the left-hand path. We're talking about Kane, the wandering swordsman, Kane, the man who cheats death, Kane, that son of a bitch that deals with Satan, and he he just he just rolls on with it. This is a cool story. Every one of these stories, they seem to be getting cooler. What do you guys think about that? It is an upward trajectory. I would say so. Yeah, this is this is interesting. This reminded me of uh, uh, an Elric story in a way. It's it's crazy because every one of the stories is a little bit different in terms of how it's structured and their overall composition. I, like I'm excited to talk about the fact that this is a story that has like very clear chapters, and I think it's not necessarily a complicated narrative. It's just a chapter by chapter breakdown, but it's just like I don't know. It just builds, and there's a, there's a lot of cool world building, but there's more like Cain mythology building in this story for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to talk about Raven's Eerie here in a, here in a few minutes. This is in the, the Night Winds uh, trade paperback. If you can get that in hard copy or via digital means on the Amazon with the thirsty cover. It's a cool cover. Right, John? <laughs> the, one, the one that we've been reading? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or if you're, if you're real devoted – You'll go look for Chuck Hall number two from spring 1977 to read the story. If you're a if you're a true fan, yeah. If you uh if your if your A book skills are uh, of sufficient enough level, you might be able to score a copy of an original version of this for like what twenty, thirty, forty dollars. It seems like according to the time of this this moment. That's pretty cool. We'll go into the publication itself in a bit, but man. What a, what a neat little uh, magazine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so that's what we're talking about in terms of the, the main event. But uh, to get through sort of the preamble, uh, John, what are you drinking? Uh, Wild Turkey 101, the cane of bourbon. Nice. <laughs> the cane of bourbon. <laughs> it's been around since the dawn of time. I and it feel like evil. it. And I drink it with my left hand. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Oh, what about uh, you, Josh? It just went down my lung a little bit too. <laughs> <laughs> it's evil. Uh, I've got uh, a fat tire that I've been nursing since we've been uh, in line for the last hour or so. And I also have some Evan Williams Hundo Proof bottled in Bond. Kentucky nice, Street Bourbon Whiskey. That's a different Hundo P. <laughs> One Hundo P. Somebody needs to put that on a whiskey bottle. <laughs> that's ours. Patent pending. I am drinking some Ezra Brooks 90 proof. That's uh that's my big jug currently. They didn't have the the very old Barton Hundo P's at the uh at the Kroger liquor store this last time around. So so I, I opted for the Ezra Brooks. So I'm drinking that. And then the other thing that I've got going, because I only I only filled up my glass with the whiskey and the ice. I'm not gonna keep tipping from the bottle. I have two uh, Goose Island IPAs in the can. They're okay. Don't buy them. If you're if you're gonna buy a 15 pack of beer, don't don't buy those. Opt for the Founders All Days or the Centennial IPAs or whatever your local IPAs are. They're okay. Was that a Costco purchase? That was uh that was that was at the Kroger. The the Costco purchase before though i don't know if it'll still be timely because costco they move that product you know what i mean uh <laughs> but this the sam adams uh holiday case of 24 or 30 whatever it is uh that sam adams like seasonal mixer is awesome there's a there's an english porter in there that is like it's bomb ass i loved it yeah the the, the winter lager is not half bad either yeah i like I, I liked it it was a that was a solid that was a solid mix the whole way through. Yeah. Sam Adams uh, seasonal 24 slash 30 pack from Costco. If you guys can find it, snag it because it's a it's a good representation of a lot of different beers. So we've, got, we've got the the uh, Evan Dubs. We've got the the, the Ezra B. <laughs> That's right. Got the, 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 the WT, the 101. John's coming in hot. He's got that extra one percent. Yeah, you edged me out just by one. <laughs> so uh, that's what we're drinking. Uh, let's go ahead and move on over to that one thing. Guitar licks. Thanks to our uh, friends from uh, In the Gold. John, what's your one thing? My one thing, I'm going to go with another comic book. Uh, it's the Spectre series from 1992, written by John Ostrander and drawn by Tom Mandrake. I texted Luke the other night and told him that uh, we've been in quarantine, me and my family, and I've been like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read some comic books. I've got stacks and stacks on stacks of them. I'm going to finally do some of this. And I picked through a few different series, but then I was like, I really been wanting to read the Spectre book. And so I'm starting to mow through it. There's about 63, 64 issues, I think. And it's really, really good so far. I sent Luke a picture of one of the covers, I think from issue number one, and I, I really dug it. I have been enamored by the Spectre and I've never really read those stories, but I remember when like, I don't know, maybe in the mid aughts, Azarello did some Spectre issues yeah. and i i never i never i never pulled the trigger on those uh but the covers are always so evocative and that character is just 
it seems it seems super cool. It is. It's been really good so far. Ostrander is one of my favorite like '80s '90s writers. I haven't seen much from him in recent times. I think the last big thing I remember him doing was the Star Wars Legacy books for Dark Horse in the early 2000s. I don't know if either of you were fans of those, but it featured like Luke Skywalker's great great grandson or something. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he's a really cool writer. He is the Suicide Squad. That's another thing he's famous for. And the Spectre book, though, I think is a really good showcase for his talents. Just like really tight storytelling, but different from what maybe we're used to nowadays, where each issue is a complete story. There is an overarching narrative, but there's a beginning, middle, and end to each of the books that I've read so far, even though they're all sort of leading into each other. It's not so much uh, the decompression maybe that we're used to. So so is it uh, is it like cases or problems that have to be solved in any given issue uh the overarching themes are more biblical in this i would say uh where there's like maybe a demon that's gotten loose in new york city there's also a serial killer that's on the loose it's an early 90s comic so the serial killer is a man that is targeting hiv positive women because one of them gave him hiv and he wants revenge and so all of these things are sort of intersecting this demon and this serial killer as I get to issue 12 and you're meeting casts of characters and it spans from the 1930s to the 1990s because the character Jim Corrigan is the specter and he was killed in the thirties as a police officer and he was put alive into a barrel of cement and thrown in the river. And that was how his soul ended up merged with the specter and he wants revenge on the world. So there's lots of things happening. Uh, there's not been a case of the week each time, though. There are pieces where he meets a ghost and he's trying to fix things for it, but it doesn't ever work out for him. That's the story of the Spectre is he's always just a little too angry to actually get done what he wants to get done. <laughs> so with the Spectre, and uh, in, in this this kind of is a tangential question, but like the Spectre represents this, this whole supernatural type of superhero, right? Mm-hmm. So... You know, we can talk about Ghost Rider or we can talk about Spawn or, or even Hellboy. Like what supernatural comic book characters are you guys fond of outside of outside of the Spectre? Luke, you seem like a Hellblazer fan. I, I had uh, intentions of collecting Vertigo Hellraiser and I I do have a variety of those. I like the idea of Hellraiser, but I never was able to get more than like 30 issues all sort of scattered. Uh Hell but I love Blazer. that kind of. I'm sorry. Yeah, Hellblazer. Yeah. Uh, what did I say? Hellraiser. Hellraiser. <laughs> which, which is, there are Vertigo, but I think there are a lot of Hellraiser comics. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, I'm getting I'm getting my Clive Barker and my uh, Ozzy Osbourne mixed up. <laughs> John John Constantine is who I'm talking about. So uh, yeah, so I have a variety of like the the Hellblazer, Vertigos. But they're all like super sporadic. And at one point I had like, you know, certain runs that I was trying to get. But that that era of the 2000s, like that's the that's the era of like the comic book writers that that I was really excited about. So I like that. But man, I think that I mean, Hellboy is just the best and the, the the tops of anything occult. Outside of that, I mean, I love the way that like strange like dr strange and the marvel the marvel weird like there was the uh what was the dr voodoo like mm-hmm. the, the the uh so who did that was that Remember. uh frank 
Remender, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, when that stuff was coming out, like, all of that, that sort of, like, mini-revival of the occult Marvel world, that was when I was, like, super into trying to pick up all of the, the Marvel comic books and spending way too much money on a credit card. Like, that was... <laughs> I was like grad school and just buying comic books. And I, I really did like a lot of that, that type of stuff. Yeah. I think the Marvel horror, the Marvel occult books are probably the things that I was the most excited about and sort of read the most during that sort of era. I'm always down but for you- some Zatanna. I think that she's a cool character. I like what she usually gets up to in most books. The, the Grant Morrison series that he did as part of the, the seven soldiers in the mid two thousands, I thought was pretty good. And some of her early stuff I dig on the Marvel side. Yeah. I mean, tomb of Dracula, uh, Frankenstein's monster werewolf by night. You're talking some pretty classic horror stuff on that side. And then if I went back to DC, what was I just thinking about? Oh, the Frankenstein agent of shade. They had a a couple of series where Frankenstein was sort of a super spy for a supernatural spy agency that I was really into and thought was kind of fun. Where do you cool. fall, Josh? Where do I fall? In in DC, there's a character called the Phantom Stranger. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Phantom Stranger is pretty great. He is I've got great. a uh, Superman annual from, from, I think it was when I was in high school, maybe, where uh, Superman and Phantom with one another and Phantom Stranger, because he has magic powers, uh, plays the absolute smackdown on Superman. <laughs> it's, it's It's really great. Um, as far as Marvel, uh, you, you brought up tomb of Dracula and, uh, one regret that I have is I, I had those essential tomb of Dracula's like all the, well, the first three, I think there were four or five of them maybe. And I don't know why, but I sold them and I wish that I hadn't because that art in black and white actually works pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think tomb of Dracula works. It does work. It's trippy. Phantom Stranger was one of Sorry, the that recent, was uh, one of the recent DC animated shorts for one of their movies, and he it's in the seventies, and he saves somebody from a sort of a Marilyn Manson cult, if I remember correctly. Oh, cool! Yeah, it, what, it, it like, was very trippy. What is it a precursor to? Do you know? So they do little shorts with some of their animated movies. Um, right. This one was on. Was it the new? Oh, it was DC's uh, Superman Red Sun. I think it came. It was the the pre cartoon before Superman Red Sun. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, nice. They did one of those with the Spectre too, yes. right, Josh? Like I, re- or what was that? Yeah, I remember yeah, us that was back really in the day. Good. That was that was in front of. I, I think it was in front of the Death of Superman story that I picked up on, on DVD that time. Uh, yeah, that one was really really good. Very very crime noir. Uh, Spectre uh, was not a good guy whatsoever it was yeah. it was very good yeah those those shorts I, i'll have to track down the phantom stranger one uh, that sounds great okay i took us down a tangent i'm sorry no man I, I have to do I, my win- man occult comics are, are awesome that's all there is to it that's a badass one thing all right what about you josh uh, mine's not as good i, I <laughs> have been going board game crazy on ebay uh, and I picked up a uh, an old board game. This is from 2003. It was originally a German game that was translated into English, and it's called Return of the Heroes. And it was designed by Lutz Stepanat, 
And it is an adventure board game wherein you take the role of a, a fighter or a cleric or an elf or a dwarf. And you roam the land, uh, gaining strength, gaining experience uh, in preparation to fight the nameless one who will awaken eventually during the course of the game. And the, uh, you'll have to defeat him. It's very similar, Luke, to Runebound 2nd Edition, which I, I used to have and you and I played and I think enjoyed some some aspects of, but were largely kind of uh, bored and unimpressed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this has a certain charm arm to it that that game didn't have uh there for instance there's no role to move uh every character has a set number of moves they can do per turn um there are, are quests that you pick up along the way that actually have some pretty interesting story elements to them um but at at the heart of it it is still a race to defeat the end of the game. And so there's not a lot of character interaction. There's not a lot of player interaction. I think there's a pretty interesting board game geek forum that gets into that type of, uh, those types of rules that you can house rule in. But, uh, yeah, I set it up last night. I played, um, a solo version of the, the game and it was fun. I liked it. So I'm I'm looking forward to the the time in which we can get back together and and maybe spend an evening uh, roaming a magical land of the imagination. So can and, you? Uh, so is it is it designed for solo play? I mean, is that like easy to do? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a a couple of things that you have to leave out that that rely a couple of quests that rely on player interaction that you have to take account but yeah largely the setup is the same as a so as a, a multiplayer game and so uh it's from two to four players and in this ebay auction i was able to score the expansion set to it as well for not a lot of money this is a good price for a, a long out of print board game and the expansion adds uh, a whole lot more map tiles to it and that's the thing i really like about it as compared to runebound is uh the map is going to be a, a different layout and every single time that you play the game and that adds some variety. There's a lot of quests that uh, may or may not show up in a given game. So there's a lot of different ways you can gain experience. It's fun. I like it. Uh, You know, it's the kind of thing that I might play a few times and then put away for a while and then dig back out. It's nostalgic in a way that, um, you know, this is the kind of game that I would have gone crazy over when I was 11 or 12. And it takes, takes me back to that kind of that kind of feeling, I guess, of just getting into role playing games, getting into fantasy and being a part of this epic story. It's fun. I like it. Nice, dude. That sounds cool. I'm I'm excited to uh, to play it. <laughs> I want to see it on, yeah, uh, I can't wait. on on the dining room table like all, we can spread it all out. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to do that. How about nice, you, dude. Luke? What, are, what are you thinking? So so my one thing is a book. My one thing is uh, Bobby Derry's Weird Taylor's Essays on Robert E. Howard and Others, which is a publication by uh, Hippocampus Press. Uh, I've had this for a while. Like at the time of this recording, I've probably had it, uh, I don't know, like over the past like two or three episodes, but I've just been dipping into it because basically uh, this, this book is a greatest hits or sort of like high points of the the lit crit essays that Bobby Derry has done over the years 
in a variety of different forms and formats uh, within the heart, the the Howardian and sort of weird fiction realm. So at this point, I'm only about a third of the way through the book, but I like it a lot already. I think it's cool because a lot of this material might be accessible, you know, for free on the internet on a given web page, like whether it's like Todd Vick's like on an Underwood number five or another site, uh, you might be able to find these various essays, but the way that Bobby has like put them in sequence seems to be, I don't want to say clever, but just like relevant. Uh, he has, a series of of articles so like here at the front end the things that are sticking with me here on the front the front end of the the book are sort of the two sister essays that bobby did related to uh the interactions between robert e howard and clark ashton smith so the first one is called dear bob cordially yours clark ashton smith and then the the one let's see here Mm, Ebony and Crystal, Robert E. Howard, Clark Astrid Smith, and Fraternal Good Wishes. So that latter story, or that latter essay, I should say, is kind of about like how I guess in the case of the the correspondence between the two, because you know with Howard and Lovecraft, there's this very rich like history of letters. This this detailed. There's very few letters between, say, Howard and Clark Ashton Smith, like on the order of like a dozen, maybe 10, 10 letters. So Bobby goes to lengths to try to put together a narrative structure from what we know, how many letters might have been outside of what's documented uh, to kind of pr- pr- put, put together like a narrative of their of their correspondence. It's one of the essays. The, another essay is about... Uh, the loss of books within Robert E. Howard's book collection. You know, after he died, these things went into uh, a variety of sources, but they they went into general circulation within libraries. His father, you know, handed them over to libraries as like a special collection, but they kind of went into general distribution. So there's there's comments in another essay about how Clark Ashton Smith figures into that. It's really cool. And it's not the kind of thing that you would necessarily get from just reading any one essay from Bobby Derry. Uh, so I bought this on the basis of I wanted to have something that was indexed and sourced appropriately. And also, I didn't know it at the time, but I'm liking it now to sort of see the narrative that's shaping across the various chapters. Sorry, I've rambled. But all of that's to say, this is a, this is a cool book and Hippocampus Press – has all kinds of cool ass lit crit that you can pick up, uh, but you ain't gonna go wrong with Bobby Derry's uh, weird tailors or check out some, uh, you know, Sex and the Cthulhu Mythos if you want another good book. You can get those for for relatively cheap on the Kindle on Amazon. You can get them for twenty bucks in hard copy. It's a good book, and you get tons and tons of good scholarship with with those books. Like Bobby is a beast in terms of his his wide-ranging knowledge of Lovecraft and Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and these these weird tales superstars um, just just a font of knowledge it's insane man so, yeah yeah there's there is almost certainly 2 4 6 8 10 there's 
20 to 30 essays represented here within this chapter, within this, this, this tome, if you want to use it, use that term. Uh, and they span Lovecraft and Howard Smith and Howard, various friends of Howard, uh, Robert Block. It's wide in its swath. I mean, Derry gets lots of accolades within the Howard world for, you know, obviously his, his, his material there. But the dude's a Lovecraftian scholar as much as he is a Howardian scholar. Uh, yeah. And that shines through here. Uh, like, he's just a scholar of, of so many different weird fiction authors. So, Although we, we did see him brandish a knife during a panel uh, at Howard Days. So, so that makes him pretty Howardian, I would say. Yeah, he's, it's true. <laughs> cool. Those are good things. I feel like we covered the we covered the gamut there, and it may have meandered a bit, but what the hell? We're let's just it's our <laughs> podcast, and we'll do what we want. Sorry, yeah. yeah, and it's sorry, sorry, stakeholder. You know, it's the end of uh, it's the end of twenty twenty. We're basically just we're just hanging out. We're ah, see now you I mean, dated, dated the recording though. I, it's, it, it, it is almost certainly apparent by the quality of the recording. That's that's one thing. Like I don't necessarily apologize with the, the the quality of things, but I think it will be interesting to sort of track the overall trajectory of our recording quality. And as with a lot of shows, twenty twenty is going to have a, a bit more feedback, but. Whatever, we're all hurting for some some social interaction, so I think people will be forgiving. I hope so. I hope they still like us. John, I'm just not seeing your shirt. Is that a Spider-Man shirt? It is. Nice. That's pretty badass. Thanks. Or is it a Ben Riley shirt? It's pretty metal. <laughs> You're right. It is very Ben Riley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's go ahead. We'll move into uh, the story Raven's Eerie. By Carl Edward Wagner, as we've said before, it's in the the collection Night Winds. We're getting towards the end of Night Winds. We've only got two more stories on the on the back end here. One of them is a is a is a fairly short story, but uh, but I feel like we're we're firing on all cylinders here with uh, with Raven's Eerie. So, in terms of publication history. Josh, we kind of was alluding to it before. Can you kind of provide some comments about that? Yeah. So this story first saw the light of day in a magazine called Chakal. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, C-H-A-C-A-L. So Chakal or Chakal. Uh, number two, that was published in spring 1977, edited by Pat Cadigan and Arnie Fenner. And so this this thing, we were talking about the art on this earlier. Earlier, um, the cover art for this magazine was done by Jeff Easley. He of of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Monster Manual, and and other cover art fame. Um, and it, it is uh, an image from the story, and it shows Kane with his back to us, and this uh, demon lord with his hellhound, and it is rad. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a little it's pretty good. Pretty it's pretty good <laughs> uh, but this this thing luke was looking it up on eight books and and we alluded to this too uh you can get this for a, a pretty fair price i think um we have interior artwork by jim steranko we have a couple of poems by robert e. howard we have this the the cover 
a story by Carl Edward Wagner. We have just looking at these names to see who I recognize. We have a couple of art works by uh, uh, Frank Frazetta. We have an interview with Manly Wade Wellman. This thing is is amazing for a uh, a, a zine from 1977. I, I can't think of any other fanzine that we've looked up on this site that has the hard hitting star power that this thing has. And I think Luke, you were saying you could get this and and another issue for about forty bucks. Yeah. So what I was seeing was uh, as again at the time of this recording, like according to IFSB. Uh, whatever at the, at the internet <laughs> speculative fiction database, uh, there's only two two issues sort of sister to one another uh, uh, within the the single series. You can get both of them for like forty bucks. That's a that's a hell of a deal. And then another instance, you could get one of them like issue two signed by Wagner for forty bucks. So uh, these are in the neighborhood of you know twenties of dollar bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could round them up, and it seems like you know within the within the Wagnerian horror like that 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 realm. Like there's also another journal slash publication that we might talk about at one point called Whispers. Like that's where other other Kane stuff has come out that we've talked about. Like you can get issues or books of Whispers for that kind of level. So these are things that you can get a hold of them. And they're not like hundreds of dollars, but they are harder to come by. So uh, it's it's just it's just cool that there's this this realm of sort of pulp, but yet kind of like fanish publications that are going on on a small like I guess at this point with when this story was coming out, we're really dealing with like small scale publishing beyond like Arkham House and that kind of stuff. Like this is like really pretty pretty small scale stuff yeah this is a fanzine right this is an 80 page little little zine that's sold for three dollars and fifty cents back in 77 um just such a cool little piece of ephemera uh that that you can still get a hold of i I just i i think if if i were more of a collector if i had to and i do like this issue seems i don't know it's 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 really struck me in a way that some of the other fanzines we've looked at just haven't and I think it's that Jeff Easley art and, and the fact that Frazetta did a couple of in, interiors. It's beautiful, man. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And the story that we have here tonight, Raven's Eerie, is pretty beautiful in and of itself, wouldn't you say? Yeah, man. It's 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 a cool story. So what did you guys think about, like, I guess just to start out with how this story presents itself versus the the previous stuff we've talked about so undertow is a longer form story uh i mean i guess they're all like tucson setting is a bit briefer like it's a clearer structure but the dark muse is a bit complicated too what did you guys think about how raven's eerie like kind of unveils itself john you go first (laughs) um i guess as we're unveiling it as we're going through the story the part that I think grabbed a hold of me. I don't know if it's just because Josh brought it up in the last recording or what, but the fact that we have now verifiably said Karsutol is in the dirt, like it's buried and gone, and that we are like thousands of years away from our first story, that that did grab a hold of me for some reason. That was something that intrigued me a lot, and I didn't know if it stuck out to Josh as well since he's talked about timelines before in regards to this character. This, this 
felt like kind of a medieval setting versus the other stories, which have felt more, you know, biblical age or, or something like iron age versus this steel age story. I don't, I don't know. It, it did seem for some reason more modern to me. Um, and maybe it's because we're talking about Karsutal, which is, as John said, it's, it's, it's long gone. It's forgotten. We have this cool Karsutal blade that, that Kane makes reference to. And we have this inn beside the highway, which seems to me to be like, it, it just strikes me as very Dungeons and Dragons, like Gygaxian medieval sort of in, in a way that the other stories just felt earlier. No, I, I totally get what you're saying. Those other ones feel very like Howardian, Hyperborean, way in the back distance. And this one did feel like, oh, this could be in Stratfordshire on the Barbie in England or something. Like it's, <laughs> it, it could be much more medieval. Stratfordshire on the Barbie. Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. That's in the UK for sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it did seem as though gulfs of time have passed since our, our very first uh, story. And that was undertow. And I was struck by the fact that Kane is very vulnerable in this story in ways that we haven't really seen him before. What did you guys think of that? Like Kane, Kane is, in this story is not the uh, combat God. He's not the sorcerer supreme. He's, he's uh, on his deathbed for much of the story or high on opium. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so I like how this story brings into question of whether Cain is, you know, uh, cursed by God or blessed by luck. Like there's a, there's a, a comment that the demon Lord offers like in one of the final chapters that I was just kind of flipping to see if I could find it. And I couldn't, I couldn't pull it up quick enough, but he makes a a remark along those lines about he and Cain have been allies and working on the same lines. And are you just a happy jester that's like jumping along? Are you blessed by luck or are you, are you truly cursed with this story? I like that. Uh, while, while Kane's like on the brink of death, the dude like clearly has things in his pocket to keep himself alive. Like he can fake death a couple ways and we sort of see him cheat death a couple ways. This, this person, this individual is, uh, is damned to go through some serious, horrible experiences or he's just like the luckiest sob ever i like that how that's presented you still don't know necessarily uh i mean i think he's damned but i think that the way that it's presented it kind of juxtaposes that it could just be like sheer dumb luck the way that it's kind of like the way that at least sathanas or the demon lord hints at it yeah it seems that way it seems like the the Demon Lord and Kane have known one another for time immeasurable. Right, right. Like they they've played on the same side of the field. They've been opposite of one another on the field. They tend to be working for the same team, but who's the pawn is the thing that is kind of unresolved in the story. Yeah, who who is moving the pieces and who is the the actual manipulated versus the manipulator. Yeah, there's some really good writing in this story. This just there were a handful of sentences that really struck me. And one of them is 
early on in chapter one, and it says uh, the 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 party is still riding toward this inn, and it says darkness hungrily swallowed the valleys and hollows that spread out below them pools of gloom from which waves of mist rose to storm the wooded slopes and pour over the limestone ridges. Like I can see that that's, that's really evocative. I, I love it. I'm pretty sure I've driven through that on the bluegrass parkway before you, you have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Don't ever stop there. Uh, uh, here's another one. A couple pages on, they, they were all dead men and night was upon them. That's, yeah. That's an economy where that's 10 words or so. And it, 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 you, you've set the mood like that is masterful. Yeah. I like how, uh, Wagner has this way with words. Obviously, like, obviously he, you know, in our last, uh, story, like we, we learned that night winds is the name of this, this manuscript, this poem that's being constructed. But there's also the use of the term night winds within the context of this story. It pops up just like in a single, a single phrase, uh, Wagner knows what gets down and sort of shakes you and gives you the heebie jeebies. And it's all about like evocation. Like he is trying to evoke fear and very base instincts and, and responses with his writing. And he's able to do it like that. Those types of phrases that you use, Josh, like they, they they're very base and emotive. Like, like you just you get scared. Yeah, it certainly plays on your nerves. Here's another one. Kane took the strangely hilted blade from him. Someone has gone out, out to get his Carsutal, like, you know, magic steel blade uh, and rested the scabbard against his leg. His fingers touched it, sensed its strength. Steel knew neither pain nor exhaustion. And its own, only fever was the warmth of an enemy's blood. Holy crap. That's so good. And in, in just one or two sentences, Wagner has summarized how Kane feels, right? Because Kane is on the brink of death in the story. And he's taken this whole notion from the Conan 1982 movie with the riddle of steel and, and taken something, I don't know, added something to that. So, yeah. So good. He, yeah, he, he knows exactly what kind of sandbox he's playing in. And that's, that's kind of cool. Cause at this point in time, there is an established like series of tropes that you can rely on. So he's layering, uh, the intentions and the, 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 the take home messages of his writing with things here. Like it's, it's, e- I would, I don't want to make it easier for him, but he's able to stand on the shoulders of the previous people like Howard and take what they've done and, and basically add layers of like, uh, what's the word like pathos and, and, and like overall gra- gravity to the, to the story. Yeah. It, and the, the really impressive thing is just how succinctly he can do that. Uh, yeah. Here's another from, from later in the story. This is when we meet the demon Lord and he says, uh, but stop to consider my game since I doubt its nature confuses you. You must admit I've set the game board. Well, for seven years, Ian or has poisoned land, twisted her soul and tainted the spirits of those about her. And now to seal her pact of vengeance, she will give me the child, the daughter. She has tortured herself to keep hating for seven years. Is it not a work of art? Kane, <laughs> man, this is uh, yeah yeah man there's so much evil in the story like 
the way that Sathanas or the Demon Lord is painted, the way that Ionor is painted, there's a lot of bad people in this story. <laughs> the fact that Kane is not liking your top two or three is a is a telling is a telling a telling mark. The, the crazy thing is he set all of this in motion, right? Like to to sort of discuss the well, let me back up. The cool thing about some of these stories is the way that Wagner works uh, or uses time in creative ways. And so he often shows us something that will happen. And then I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's this weird sort of asynchronous way that his stories work. And in this one, we have Kane half dead seeking this in. We, we know there's a redheaded child in this thin. The only, other redhead we know of is Kane. Like we know there's a link there, right, John? Absolutely. Uh it's very <laughs> foreshadowed that this girl is gonna be Kane's kid and uh the mom hates her. It's a and it's then an we learn undercurrent that yes, it's an undertow, I would say. And then we learn the reason for this hatred is that is because of Kane and his men prior to this night raided this inn and raped these women, right? And Eonor or Ionor is one of the the women that fell victim to Cain's predations. And, and this child is the product of that. And she's and she is a horrible person and is treating her daughter horribly. But it's because Cain raped, right? right like right. Th- this is the layers of how effed up can the story get? <laughs> this is I, I love the I love the shades of gray. There's no there's nothing more than dark gray, darker gray fading to black with uh, the devil, you know, with Satan, like at, yeah. the, at the base of it. It's good. And one cool thing about the story, I think, is that the daughter, I can't think of her name. I think it starts with the K. Oh, uh, Clist. Yeah. She recognizes Cain for who he is and what he is and is enamored with it. Like she is already on the dark, dark path. He is like a 10 year old, right? She's, um, and we see glimmers of the, the ways in which she might follow her father's following her father's footsteps. And it's harrowing. I think like it's, it's not put on front street. I don't think, but it's, it's certainly, it had to have occurred to you guys too, right? Like this, this girl is going to be, an evil person because of how she's been brought up and who uh, her father is. What do you think of, what do you think of that? Am I off base or is that sort of in the the cards with this story? I guess that my only disagreement is that it's not necessarily because of Kane. Like Kane's impact on this girl isn't, is conception. But beyond that, like the mom made a lot of the choices that will drive who this person becomes in the future. And like, maybe that's the evil of Cain writ large is original sin, then his original murder. And then like going down the timeline to the rest of forever and to all of us, like maybe you could talk about that as part of his, his problem and his effect on the world. But in this one girl's life, I mean, Cain is not a good dad, but he doesn't let his daughter go to hell with a hellhound, at least. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. But if you look at the trajectory of these stories overall, whose life or, or what characters have interacted with Kane and come out of it uh, unscathed? Like He has had a 
negative impact on everyone he's met, right? Yep. If if he had never met that giant, the giant might never have kill, been killed. You're right. Yeah, and Desalyn, while she while she uh, ultimately got the thing she wanted, she still died. <laughs> <laughs> like an undertow well yeah you're right like these these people these souls all have this interaction with this this one individual and uh it's not for for gain there's always a a, either a, a, a net balance or a negative that plays out you know they they get some sort of like moral balance that plays plays out with things but ultimately they die (laughs) his poet friend friend and dark muse that didn't turn out well although arguably that was not necessarily kane's fault kane just kind of aided and abetted that situation and that's the kind of the scariest we don't even know how the hell that story played out we weren't even in the room that was like event horizon style we don't even like we don't even know the types of horrors and delights that played out <laughs> with the reciting of that that story to go back to hellraiser yeah <laughs> to, to bring it to bring it back around what fresh little delights so (laughs) this is this is a baser this is a baser story i i love how horrible the mom is and the fact that we get these layers of how evil the the inn is and like what their motivations are so we get like what like the trope of a the murder tavern tavern the murder (laughs) inn that lures you in you get that uh you get like mixed up mommy issues it's not daddy issues in the story but it's mommy issues and you get you know black dogs you get satan you get deals with the devil there's there's so many badass tropes that get wrapped up in the story and they all very much work yeah john what's something about the story that you like i I feel like i've been just sort of rambling about it no i mean that's the show we all ramble uh i guess that some of the stuff that i dug we talked about the time part the murder in part, I guess, I was intrigued by. I, I'm. I don't know how you guys, how much you know about like H. H. Holmes. I think his name was who ran the hotel in Chicago when he killed all those folks. But this idea of a murder hotel where you check in and never check out, I find that idea terrifying and fascinating. As somebody whose job and pre-COVID times involved some travel, when that pops up in these stories, like these sword and sorcery stories, I always take notice of that. And so. The idea that Kane pillaged and raided this place, and originally it's sort of like, isn't he such a bad person for taking away these this family's nice hotel, this Holiday Inn, and the mountains from them? And then it's like, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. Like, he maybe stopped some murders on accident. And the fact that it aids him in the end where he gets to find the, the ladder and escape on accident from his pursuers, I find interesting. I I, I know that's sort of a a small detail in the overall story where we have a demon and a demon hound on the night of a harvest moon chasing a bunch of mercenaries. Maybe it's stupid to be like, oh, the inn is also cool. But uh, that was one of the things that grabbed me. (laughs) No, man, I agree. I think that's really cool. Like the, 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 the cleverness of the sort of social design of it also like the physical placement of this of this tavern next to the river where there's this easy disposal of bodies there's this level of like hidden like like this is this is almost it's not haunted housey but there's like 
like layers to the the building. Like I love the way that when it's first described, like the various wings of the tavern or the the building have been burnt out, and we have this this central hub. The 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 overall landscape of the story is also important like it becomes important as wagner talks about kane's escape and his encounter with with satan or the the demon lord and like all of that stuff like this is a cool setting like this cliff and this tavern and this river all coming together it's kind of a what am i trying to say well like a so to me it was this idea of like, this is the only place of respite that we are told about in the whole story. Like, we're on yep. this terrible mountain trail. Like, this is supposed to be the place where you can go and check in while you're trying to get through this pass or these mountains, and which is bandit country. So, it feels like it's this whole coded message about things aren't always what they seem. Like, uh-huh. Kane is a bad guy, but he also saves his daughter. Is he a pawn? Is he not a pawn? Is he the, des- the master of his own destiny? Or is nobody the master of their own destiny. It's just like all of these things are things within things. They're all inceptions. And it was, it's interesting to me. I don't know what else to say about that. Then it's it's good writing on Carl Edward Wagner's part. I think that all of that is intentional. That's the, the question marks with the writing that cause you to kind of like really stew over it. Right. What else do you like Luke? Uh, so I like the, I like the murder tavern, aspect and the sort of spatial aspect of it i like that we have deals with the devil that's something that we haven't quite hit on i like that there's there's bartering with the devil and i like the fact that that kane doesn't even like give two shits about the devil i love like kane's kane's swagger like he is he's the best man this this is why this is why i love kane because he's like spitting in the eye of satan he's he says you know, whatever. You and I are on the same side sometimes, but like he makes some remark. He used like Wagner. This is something that Wagner gets like criticized about in some in some circles. I mean, like with the way that people write about him, he says like, uh, "Oh, he says here, I got it, I got it." So Kane says, "If you set the game board for this night, Sathanas, you cannot, you still cannot manipulate all the pieces." One. Or other men may use you as pawns, but not Cain! Exclamation point. And this is the thing. I'll yield to no predestined fate, and if I fall, I'll die hard, and I'll die a free man. The fact that he's like, I'm going to die hard, I'm going to die a free man, it's just, it's it's the most uh, metal that we've seen uh, of any sword and sorcery characters. The, the way that Wagner writes Cain is very modern and i think that that while that can be off-putting to some readers i think that i like that that little bit of swagger that it gives kane with the way that it's sort of spelled out all he does is all all that's missing is a fiddle bite right (laughs) i mean you know he saves his daughter he says nah not today satan and and satan says well i got i got some fresh souls to get and he goes on his hunt and kane's like yeah Screw those a holes. They got it coming. <laughs> I, I I love the the ambivalence of it all. Just the overall moral gray area that this story occupies. It's it's not different than other stories. It's just so much more like on display. Like Undertow, Kane's a dick. Like he 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 loves a girl, but he also like gives her over to death because that's what she wants. 
and he kills a giant and there's like this story is just more classic like sns gray area there's no right right answer here how do you feel about this evil wotan's hunt aspect to the story i think it's all cool uh, this is I don't know how other other readers feel, but like uh, Wagner's appropriation of our language and our general symbols, I think it's I think it's really effective. It makes you like immediately get what the story's going for, and it makes it both alien and recognizable at the same time. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, totally. the The character of Sethonis, he mentioned several of his names, right? But this guy is an amalgam of of demons. He's the demon lord. He's the the top tier. He's Satan, and he I I like his puppers, like his his doggo, <laughs> Cerberus. It, it's great. It's it's this notion of who Cain is siding with, who is manipulating him. Uh, anyway. And Cain seems to be on his own side. If there's a light side and a dark side, Cain is this this twilight between the two. Like he's the the horizon that separates the sun from, from the dark mountains. And I I like the fact this like it's John, you pointed out this Nordic sort of view of this uh, Wotan or Wotanaz figure hunting for mortals in the night. But uh, a, a dark man with his black dog is is a very appalachian and southern thing too right like this this sort of captures both uh not i don't want to say both several traditions yeah uh, in terms of folkloric dark men with dark hounds uh it's cool i love it it makes me think of uh the end of uh oh brother where art thou with uh, <laughs> yeah. man with the mirror shades and our manly wade Wilma stuff i mean it's it's the same it's the same tropes in a different a different kind of campaign setting. What yeah. does he say? Human institutions don't apply to me. <laughs> and, there, and there's similar statements like that the, the, these dudes are playing chess, that they are playing on a board that is a much longer time scale than everybody else. Like there's there's moral arguments that are being had, but ultimately this is a very I like. So this is a. You, you mentioned Norse mythology, Josh, like uh, or in reference to John. But like ultimately, those stories can seem kind of selfish, where it's different gods that got like axes to grind, and they're kind of it's just story against story. I love how in this story, while there's ultimately this larger, I mean, there's there's souls that are getting sacrificed to like crazy unearthly horrors. They're unimportant. The only things that are really important are Cain, Sithonis, the mother, the daughter. Like that's really all that comes across in this story. And the fact that Cain and uh, the demon lord are kind of arguing about like how much they might be frenemies, uh, I think is cool. Like the fact that it's kind of a selfish argument that's playing out i like the way that it's kind of it's it's both intimate and the stakes are higher like nobody gives gives a crap ultimately about the stakes of the souls of the various like bounty hunters 
and and otherwise in the story at least i didn't like you know the fact that they're like dying it's just like oh more meat for the grinder you're kind of like laughing and and roiling and then happiness or the like the mirth of like it's it's just like that's the that's the fun like bloody gory r-rated morality of it like really the moral core is the interaction between Kane and the demon Lord. And I like that it's intimate between the two. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's of a type. Like this is a story that's played out in, in other settings. You could look at Elric and, and his association with Arioch, the demon. But one thing that just occurred to me while you were talking is uh, the killing joke. And the the uh, the Batman story where uh, we have Batman and the Joker talking about, uh, you know, maybe maybe someday I'll kill you. Maybe someday you'll kill me. But really, there is no me without you and there's no you without me. Like we're, yeah, we're yeah. two same coin sort of. Uh, and I, I get that sort of feeling with Kane and Sathanas in this. They're both demonic in their own ways. Well, I'm pairing it with the last story where we had. Somebody bless Cain almost with the name of a demon. It implies some sort of connection between Cain and demons. And seeing him interact with this guy in this story, I wonder where we'll end up next with Cain and the seven lords of hell. <laughs> yeah. So where do we go? Yeah. I, f- I feel like we're kind of like coalescing on a, a very favorable aspect of the story. Are there any like plot points that we want to emphasize? Do we want to talk about the final moments of how it plays out with the mother and the daughter? Do you guys want to hit on any of that? It, well, it seems like the mother promised uh, a soul to Sathanas for vengeance. And was was not super specific was planning to give her daughter to this demon and ended up dying herself thus fulfilling the pact i i i like that i like that sort of perversion of justice or that that twist of you know what was desired versus the the outcome it's very phantom stranger it is just very phantom stranger it's very specter too yeah. i think yeah uh yeah for sure i think that that whole relationship, there's a lot of meat on those bones. Like we could pick through that for a whole episode probably and talk about those two and their interactions and this idea of withholding love from her for seven years so you can give her up to a devil and get your revenge on the man who raped you. Like there's a lot there and there's nobody who's wrong or right, I guess on either side of that. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about even because like, why wouldn't she want revenge on Cain? Of course she should incorporate, incorporate a devil if she can to try and kill Kane if it costs her a kid like I don't know maybe that's not a bad deal <laughs> it is hard to apply morality to this one isn't it and yeah. and I'm like it's, this is the the case where where it's super no one is no one is good everyone is bad right some good things come out of some bad deeds but Ultimately, yeah, this is a tragedy that plays out in slow motion over seven years. And it's interesting to me that it's this sort of cosmic tragedy of Cain set against the human tragedies of Weed, who wants the gold and is caught up in these like machinations of Cain in the mountains. Like, he's just a thief and he got all his teeth busted out because he's associated with Cain and Cain ruined this woman's life. Like, 
the fact that his life is so long and he can cause so much damage, I feel like that's something we'll come back to time and time again, that, that the mark of Cain is, isn't one thing. It's a stain on humanity that transcends time almost. <laughs> and I, I, I think, I think the concept of immortality and like what a curse that is, is, is part and parcel to this, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that he's along and seven years is just a, a snap of the fingers and a series of like raids within the mountains to him versus the horror that he evoked for the mother and ultimately the daughter. Right. Their whole life are consumed by this and it's just this like snapshot in time for him it's this moment in yeah. ever that he'll look back on sometimes but i mean even Karsutol at this point is just this polaroid that he can be like oh yep i remember when i was there and there's not even any mention of his his demon worship in that city and the women he condemned and yeah like it's it's all sands in the hourglass for him those are yeah, those are dreams, dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's cool that like uh with 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 Conan, like Conan is the freebooter, Conan is the rogue, Conan is the the king. Those are human ages that he's living through and they can reference one another. Here everything is like Kane is alien. Like Kane is an alien across his entire time span. Like he did probably doesn't even remember Desalin. Like Desalin was a fling, right? Like the entire story of undertow was just like a hot summer night and <laughs> not, not this very emotive, like uh, loss of a soul because that's what she wanted. And she herself was living out this countless intervals of love with multiple men. Like it's, it's 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 awesome it's awesome it like like truly upon the like the definition of the word it's awesome like the time scale and think of the magnitude of those emotions and those moments for a mortal versus Cain who has been around since mankind was created it, it's amazing it's astounding to think about how little you know life and death mean to someone who can live forever how life and death mean everything to somebody who only lives 50 years 60 years 70 years you know i think i'm i think i've i've just rung in my midlife crisis officially on the podcast <laughs> just tonight <laughs> yeah i i love that contrast between conan and his career changes versus Kane uh, epics that he sort of spins as uh, the sorcerer king of this ancient city versus this bandit lord versus uh, whatever he is here. Like, yeah, no, that's a good point because Conan, like even those epochs sort of reference one another or impact one another. And in this case, Karsutol is just a sword that he carries that you can't find anymore. Like, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, I felt like we were going down that path. Like, I was like, Oh, this will be very how And he'll talk about, I was a King, but now I'm a slayer and whatever. But it's just, you know, this is what I'm doing now. I'm, I live in this mountain and I kill people. Yeah. With this ancient cool sword. Right. Yeah. So, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. At this point, guys, do you guys have any final thoughts about the story? No, I, I just love this 
this interplay between the demon that is a literal demon and the demon that is Cain, who is a human who can't die. Like, they're so similar, yet there are subtle differences. I, I think it's I think it's neat. And again, all of those little usages of that Wagner weaves into the story, man, puts it over the top for me. I, I think this is my favorite one so far. Cool. What about you, John? No, I think we've we've kind of covered all of it. The mark of Kane continues to be a theme. And I know we started with it as like the red hair or the blue eyes or the white skin. And now I'm starting to think it's more biblical and cosmic than even that. So I'm excited for the next story. Cool. Uh, So the next thing that we're talking about is a story called Linordis Reprise or Linordis Reprise, depending on your pronunciations. And it's about the downfall of civilization and cities and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, Again, it's a different story than what we've encountered so far. So it'll be cool to see how Cain is dealing with a different time and a different age. So uh, what else? I have a, a podcast shout out that we can talk about at this point. Do we want to do want to hit on anything else, guys? No, let's let's bring it to a close and and give a shout out to a, a fellow podcaster in the sword and sorcery and pulp uh, American horror sort of field. Nice, yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and give a shout out to the Dark Crusade. Uh, that's a that's a podcast that's been out for some number of years at this point. They're, they are a Carl Edward Wagner show that's, that's been around. Have either of you guys listened to them? No, I've, but, I've listened to a handful of them. No, okay. but when I've, I've dug around on Kane, I have found it multiple times. It seems it seems like they are the the, the go to, and they're they're plumbing the depths before us. But Jordan Smith, he uh, he reached out to us, and we've heard from him. He uh, he works for Hippocampus Press or is affiliated with them. Uh, so we we had some other correspondence with with Jordan, but but he touched touched base with us. He says uh, they have a uh, a podcast where they've actually covered uh, Bloodstone and Nightwinds, and you know we responded and said thanks. We weren't we weren't necessarily aware of the the show strategy. So I'm going to go ahead and read from Jordan's email here. He says. Uh, we've been able to uh, touch base with the John Hay Library to do research and include some little tidbits with episodes and blog posts. And at least for the Bloodstone novel, we compare his high school first draft to the completed first version he did just some years later. So they've been able to uh, plumb some depths. Yeah, they've been able to plumb some depths uh, ahead of us according to like these stories. So, so that's good stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, and you know, it, it seems very much like, uh, the, the Wagner equivalent to us in our first handful of seasons where we were, uh, sort of keeping with the Robert E. Howard stories. Um, and yeah, I've listened to a couple of those episodes and, and, and Jordan goes in, uh, real deep in these stories and talks, uh, not just the stories and, and, what goes on in them, but what is happening in Wagner's world as these stories are coming out. So uh, you guys, if you're interested in these stories and you're, you're digging this content, go check out the dark crusade podcast and uh, listen to those and, and tell them the Chromecast sent you. Yeah. So, so Josh, you want to bring us home? How can folks find the Chromecast? Just 
keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're successful already. You found us. Um, we're on the web at the chromecast.blogspot.com where we post more information about the stories that we're reading and some uh, scholarship. If we can find any on the given stories as we, as we post these episodes, you can correspond with us on Twitter. We're at the Chromecast or on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash the Chromecast. Or you can email us directly. That's the Chromecast at gmail.com. You can call us. That number is 859-429-CROM. Get your parents' permission. Always. Don't, don't get anything without your parents' permission. <laughs> right, John? That's right. And we'll is catch, that words to live by? That's words to live by. And we'll catch you all and your parents a little further down the road of the left-hand path. That's right. Say hi to your mom for us. 